Welcome to the Geek Sweat Podcast. We watch films to save you hassle. It's another podcast with a filmmaking twist for you. I am Trevor Jones and we will bring you hot topics in the film industry, inspiration interviews with IMDb listed filmmakers, review sweat on online series as they stream, trailer talk on upcoming feature films and cult TV perspectives on classic shows worth revisiting. Sharing the frame with me today are Akosh, King Dom and Steven and our new comptroller Neo Geo. Shall I let you guys say say hello? I forgot about that. <laughs> no, no, you know, just, just keep talking over us like you always do. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. Actually, you're going to have to probably leave uh, Between your ears and our voices, we take this opportunity to make the most of our podcast technology. Recorded on Shure mics, sound mixed in Pro Tools, and projecting on Optoma Full HD. We still love you guys. And computerized by Utopia Computers. We are now recording live and direct from Ithaca House. We're here. So, this is the next episode of Geek Sweat, and we are now giving you over to a cult TV segment. We're continuing our thread and theme of Doctor Who, brought to you by... Stephen Cody, 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 Stephen you asked for that intro, Stephen. And I, I did now not. I have never, ever <laughs> asked for that intro. I just thought I made that clear. <laughs> okay, so Stephen, great to have you back on this episode. And thanks for walking us and talking us through all doctors who've played Doctor Who. Uh, who are you, you going to... say try that sentence again? <laughs> oh, actually, all actors who, who play Doctor Who. Um, okay. Who are we going to be introduced to... This week, uh, Tom Baker, a, a little known doctor from the 70s. Um, now, Tom Baker is, I, I, he was the doctor for seven years. He's, I, I mean, I'll talk a little bit about his life before Doctor Who, but what you should really do is buy his autobiography, Who on Earth is Tom Baker, which is still the funniest, best autobiography I've ever read. And um, I might be a bit biased, but that um, details a lot of, you know, his life. Um, before and during and after Doctor Who. Before he was the Doctor, he was born in Liverpool in um, 1934, I think. Let me. So just he's check. actually a Scouser. He is actually a Scouser, oh, but he's done he, he's he's done well to to he's get over that um, <laughs> impediment to his um, <laughs> chances. And um, yeah, so he was brought up in a working class Catholic family. At the age of 15, he started studying to become a uh, a monk. Um, he was in the seminary for six years, but found that during those six years, he lost his faith and realised that he wanted to break each of the Ten Commandments um, in order. So what type uh, of monk was, was he? What denomination? Well, it'd be a Catholic, obvious thing, uh, obviously a Catholic thing. I'm trying to... Oh, the brothers of P.O. Ermel, the brothers of Christian instruction in Jersey and okay. later in Shropshire. Wow. <laughs> so do you think that kind of time and discipline may have affected or informed his performances as Doctor Who? It probably did. Um, I expect so. He was, he's a bit of a one-off, is Tom Baker. Um, he then, he, he, so he left the monastery when he was 21 years old, um, did national service in the Royal Medical Corps, um, studied at the Royal Rosie, Rose Bruford's College of Speech and Drama, met his first wife, tried to kill his first wife's mother... Really? 
Yeah, that seems well, all right. <laughs> this is still Tom Baker. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was going to say we've all been there, but then I realised that's a bit dark, so I'm not going to say that. Is this something that we want to explore? No, um, he, he goes in about it, about having to live... Because um, his, um, his first wife's parents were very rich, so he, he was sort of married into quite a rich family, and they hated him, and, and he hated them. So it wasn't just about he was wanted to kill the mother for the inheritance. No, that the, the, they fell out, and um, he, he he relates it. I mean, I I do urge everyone to buy his um, autobiography because it's better in his words than could ever be in mine. Um, so he, he became an actor, and after his marriage broke down, he um, joined his the first national free marriage. His free first marriage. of free marriages, yeah. Um, his um, he he um, joined. Um, Lawrence Olivier in the National Theatre. Um, he did some stage work, and his big um, film break was um, playing Rasputin in the nineteen seventy one version of Nicholas and Alexandra. Um, he was nominated for Golden Globes for these performances and uh, best uh, best supporting role, best newcomer. He also appeared in um, so uh, one of the uh, Amicus uh, horror. Oh, what do you call them? The um, portmanteau <laughs> horror films, you know, the four stories. He appeared in um, The Vault of Horror and he appeared in The Golden Voyage of Sinbad, uh, Ray Harryhausen's um, version. But when he got the role of the Doctor, he was working on a building site. In fact, the, the day he got um, announced in the role, they went down to his place of work where he was still, like, kind of serving off his notice. <laughs> Took a few pictures of him. Working uh, as a builder, um, he so took that over. Mean he was a strapping lad when he was younger. Then? Yeah, um, he was. He's, he's a big guy, is Tom Baker. He's he famously in the seventies. Uh, he used to hang around in Soho, and as part of the Soho set with people like um, the actor Francis Bacon, no, the um, painter Francis Bacon, and Peter O'Toole and Oliver Reed. He could famously drink Oliver Reed under the table. Wow. Yeah, and. Um, uh, when people were asking questions about his time as a doctor, he says, you have to remember that I was very drunk at the time. <laughs> and, uh, he, was, he played the role for seven years. Um, he took over from John Pertwee. Um, it also, Tom Baker's uh, uh, debut um, almost corresponds with the debut of Philip Hinchcliffe as producer and uh, Robert Holmes as the script, uh, uh, script editor. As I think I said last time that the, the the role of showrunner, which we have now, was then split into two people. So you had the producer and the script editor. Um, they started off, it's a little bit like, the, the, the first Tom Baker story is basically the last John Pertwee story. It features, like, I remember if you, I was talking about last time, the, um, the the Doctor was kind of exiled on Earth. I never explained why he was exiled on Earth. I mean, if I talked about the, um, the trial he was put on everything. But this is important with the Tom Baker years is that he was put on trial by the Time Lords for interfering in the um, affairs of other planets. The Time Lords saw themselves as a kind of um, godlike, that, that, you know, that the um, trials and tribulations of lesser people were of no concern of theirs. And right. so they were... So, so his doctor was a doctor of the people? No, his, that's, this is... I'm still talking... We're going back to the second doctor here. Okay, okay. He was put on trial and exiled to Earth, and that's why John Pertwee's Doctor Who is originally exiled to Earth. It was also to do with budgets and the fact that Doctor Who was nearly cancelled at the end of the 60s, but they agreed to bring it back as long as the, it was cheaper, and so they exiled Doctor Who Earth. However, Tom Baker, he's, um, he becomes the Doctor. The last, his, 
First story is called Robot. It's written by Terence Dix, who well, obviously was the script editor during the Pertwee era. It features the unit family for the last time with the Brigadier. And um, and then the Doctor at the end says, all right, I've had enough of unit. I'm off. And he sets off in the TARDIS. So this is a complete break with the Pertwee years. Um, suddenly the Doctor's out travelling in space again. He's with um, John Pertwee's last companion was Sarah Jane Smith, who is often voted the greatest companion of all the Doctor Who companions. Who played um, Sarah Jane Smith? Sarah Jane Smith was played by Elizabeth Sladen. In the um, 2000s, she got her own spin-off programme on CBBC called The Sarah Jane Adventures, which the Doctor appeared in a couple of times. Um, she, she, her and Tom Baker were seen as the classic Doctor Who um, companion and Doctor. It's like... Um, like uh, John Steed and um, Emma Peel in um, The Avengers, it's the same thing. So these stories, you can divide um, Tom Baker's era into three, well, two and a half distinct parts. You have the first three years, which were produced by Philip Hinchcliffe, like like I said, and um, Robert Holmes' scripts editing. And these were much darker than the Doctor Who that's come before. Um, They were looking at classic literature for um, um, inspiration. So you've got... uh, a story like um, uh, The Brain of Morbius, which takes the Frankenstein story and gives it a science fiction twist. Did Tom Baker have any influence in the direction of the stories and scripts? Not at the beginning, but obviously as time went on and he became the, uh, you know, the most experienced person in the crew, then his opinions, he would offer his opinions more because i mean so the first three years of tom baker we, we see a much moodier doctor he's much more of a playing the doctor much more as an alien than, than as a uh, than john pertwee who played him more as a kind of upper middle class uh, gentleman um this doctor's odd he doesn't he's otherworldly yeah he doesn't react as you'd expect him to, to react to things he he's into making great speeches he makes a great speech in the ark in space about how much he loves humans and their indomitable spirit. I mean, it's kind of patronising, but it's kind of great too. And um, But this makes for better writing, I suppose, oh, because yeah, yeah. they can segue into different stories just based off his personality yeah. rather than the action going on around him. Yeah, and also, so in his first season, you've got a classic stories like The Ark in Space where humans are, have left Earth and in an ark mm. and there's an infection on the ark wow. and the Doctor. And so the whole of humanity now under threat from an organism on their spaceship. It's mm-hmm. a Doctor has to solve. And then, of course, there's the story that's often voted the greatest Doctor Who story ever, which is Genesis of the Daleks, mm-hmm. in which Terry Nation, the guy who invented the Daleks, if you remember, I was saying that he probably shouldn't have um, got the credit he should because it was Why the guy that? who designed the Daleks, yeah. who arguably is the guy who's responsible for the popularity of the Daleks. But anyway, they got um, Terry Nation back to do another Dalek story. And his Dalek stories. To, in the John Perry era, era, were getting repetitive. And um, he, they asked him for a proposal. He sent in a proposal and they said, look, this is a very good script, but it's the same script you sent the last three times. Can't you do something new with the Daleks? How about an origin story? And this is how Genesis of the Daleks came about. And, of course, in Genesis of the Daleks, he introduces the great Doctor Who villain Davros, so can I just say something? Yeah. So this means that we've seen the Daleks in Doctor Who yeah. and they've actually been bold enough to go back and do an origin story. Yeah. Which is what we're basically seeing today with like things like Avengers. Yeah, kind of. Marvel. But, you know, obviously the Doctor's a time traveller, so it's not yeah. an impediment to him to just go and land somewhere. 
But the thing is, the idea yeah. of doing an origin stories like yeah. halfway through a series probably yeah, hadn't, yeah. hadn't been done before. Yeah, that, that, that's that's true. Yeah, but so they go back and you got Dav, Davros is a mad scientist. He, he it turns out that in, originally he created the Daleks. Um, in his he, um, if I had to describe him, he he his bottom half is the same as a Dalek, and then up above he's got one arm. He's got. Two of his eyes are missing. He's got one eye, like fake eye on his forehead, and he wears a black kind of Nazi type black leather, um, uh, what do you call it, kind of coat. Um, not not that attractive. And it's a fascinating story. There's, it comes into, there's a lot of um, like two part, um, two handers with the doctor and Davros discussing morality, discussing philosophy, and kind of the doctor at one point has the, has the um, chance to wipe the Daleks out forever. All he has to do is touch these two pieces of um, metal together, like two wires together. The Daleks will be wiped out and never have existed. And the Doctor decides that he can't do this, that there'll be, there'll be um, uh, uh, aliens and um, there'll be people in the future who will bond and through their hatred of the Daleks and the Daleks will inspire them to kind of become heroes and to fight something to fight against. And he says it's not his responsibility to 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 stop the Daleks. Interesting. So do you think this show had like some metaphors to things like World War II, which, you know, then would be in lots of people's recent memories or yeah, not recent yeah, yeah. memories, but I mean, living I mean, memories? I mean, Genesis of Daleks is kind of um, uh end of Second World War type story. Everyone, it, what's happened is that the the Carleds, who are the, um, the, the they're the, um, they're the race that the Daleks are, are evolved from or, or um, Davros uses to create the Daleks. And um, it's, it's kind of the end of Second World War. Um, two cities, one of them's got the Fowls in, one of them's got the Carleds, and they're at a stalemate. There's, there's nothing more that can be done. And, and it's a story about that, but it, um, it's a fantastic story. And Davros, is, Davros has become a, a compelling villain that people still kind of reference today um, outside of Doctor Who. Um, and, and this is, this character, so for three seasons, we've got these kind of darker stories that were more based on horror. There's kind of a hammer horror influence. There's also, um, we've got uh, stories like um, Pyramids of Mars, which is kind of the mummy one. With um, There's uh, an evil Egyptian god called Sutek. And that, that's another classic. I mean, there's so many classic stories in the fourth Doctor's era. The, the Brain of Morbius that I mentioned earlier. And then later on, um, there's um, uh, Robots of Death, which is kind of an Agatha Christie story in space. The Talons of Wang Chiang, which is a Victorian Sherlock Holmes story. So you've got all these influences. The problem is that um, Mary Whitehouse didn't like it. Can I say one thing before we get into the Mary Whitehouse debate? Would it be fair to say that the Tom Baker era of Doctor Who introduced the most new characters in terms of villains and just aliens? Because it seems I like we're seeing a lot here. I mean, every year introduces their own villains as well as using the perennials like the Cybermen and the Daleks, but they, they, they always bring in... They, there are a lot of great villains in the Tom Baker era. I mean, it is... To a lot of people, it's the high point of Doctor Who. These, three, these first three seasons are the high point of Doctor Who to a lot of people. Um, there is a story in Robert Holmes and... Um, Philip Hinchkiss' last season, which, no, no, Robert Holmes stayed on for a season after Philip Hinchcliffe left, but there's a story called The Deadly Assassin. 
The Deadly Assassin is interesting because it's kind of where Doctor Who fans split. Before The Deadly Assassin, there were uh, everyone enjoyed watching Doctor Who is great. And um, The Deadly Assassin posited a story where the Doctor is called back to Gallifrey's home planet. And instead of being the godlike beings that they'd been portrayed as before, there were suddenly these petty bureaucrats. And it was kind of like a Manchurian candidate JFK assassination kind of influence story. And um, the president of the Doctor Appreciation Society at the time um, wrote a review of it, which is to say it's the worst piece of of, um, of Doctor Who that's ever been made, whereas some Why people think it's the greatest. It, it it just it made the time lords petty, and by, by extension, it, they they thought it made the um the doctor petty. It was it was all about you know it suddenly the the time lords were just a load of bureaucrats like in like civil servants, and everyone thought it just. Whereas Robert Holmes, who wrote it, he he really pushed the idea of kind of the the time lords as being just as corrupt as everyone else, and he he liked to um bring That's out the darkness in. Because the thing is, you have got like Douglas Adams, <coughs> who's I'm written... going on to Douglas Adams in a bit. Okay, so. no, I was just saying because he um wrote, uh, I think he said he wrote a Doctor Who once, and he went on to do the well, Heavy Blue gonna... Craig. <coughs> if you, uh, if you wait, you're kind of five minutes ahead of me. Okay. <laughs> so anyway, this the, the um. Anyway, the Deadly Assassin episode three is set in a kind of basically it's, it's like a, it's like the Matrix, but it's actually called the Matrix too. And um, the Doctor is like an imaginary um, imaginary landscape where he fights his enemy in the Deadly Assassin. And at the end of the episode, the Doctor's fate head is pushed under the water to, to you know to, as the the villain tries to drown him, and then it goes to a freeze frame of the Doctor under the water. And Mary Whitehouse got very upset about this and said that children would think that, that the Doctor would be under the water for a whole week and that would disturb them. Right. She's, I mean, she, couldn't, she thought everyone thought things that a cliffhanger that everyone kind of stops in time for yeah. the next week. I mean, it's completely ridiculous, but the BBC used to listen to her. And so Philip Hinchcliffe was, Philip Hinchcliffe was moved on from Doctor Who to a TV series, a, a cop series called Target, and, so um, Philip, H- Philip Hinchcliffe, yeah. he he his head went on the chopping block. Yeah, yeah. Based on Mary Whitehouse's mis- misunderstanding yeah. of. Well, not misunderstanding. She's she's the man about Doctor Who all the time. Mary Whitehouse this. was a very influential woman. She was. Yeah. She surprisingly was. Yeah. So can anyway. I say something completely unrelated about Doctor Who? Yeah. Mary Whitehouse tried to ban the Chuck Berry song <laughs> "My Dingaling," yeah. and yeah. I quote here because it quote. Unquote, encourage masturbation. <laughs> that was Mary Whitehouse. What an absolute tune. <laughs> so anyway, so so the first three seasons of um, uh, uh, the Philip Hinchcliffe seasons are uh, seen as the high point of Doctor Who to a lot of people. And then obviously Philip Hinchcliffe leaves and they bring in a producer called Graham Williams. Now Graham Williams' remit was kind of lightened Doctor Who a bit. You know, they don't try and scare the kids so much anymore. We want something. So, so it gradually evolves into a kind of sitcom <laughs> for two or three seasons. For the first, um, for Graham Williams' first season, I'm just looking at it here. On isn't a bad season. There's still bits of Robert Holmes' um, influence on the storylines, but it's kind of moving slightly away. Also, the budget. It's uh, the budget is so small in this season that it ends up in the story Underworld where. Instead of going and filming in caves, they just CGI the caves on and just got people walking in 
into the background and out of the background. It's such a mess of a story. They had no money. Um, but, you know, there's, it, there's still remnants of the original uh, Tom Baker era there. Then in season 16, it moves on, and we've got Doctor Who's first ever season arc, well, unless you count um, Ian and Barbara trying to get home in William Hartnell's first two seasons. This introduces the character of Romana. Romana is a time lady, and it's it's the first time lady we've seen. Um, she, she and she's just like the Doctor, except she's female. There's, there's, is she from Gallifrey? She as well? is from Gallifrey. Um, she regenerates at the end of season sixteen. So is that significant in terms of the fact that regenerating is not just unique to Doctor Who? Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's the first. I think, is it the first? I think it's the first time we see someone else regenerate apart from the Doctor and Doctor Who. I'm just trying to think. Yeah, I think that's true. Um, but anyway, the um, the tone is much more comedic as it goes on. In um, season sixteen, you have. Um, Douglas Adams' first contribution to Doctor Who, which is called The Pirate Planet, and um, which is a great story. It's very funny. Um, but that, that's what you're getting out of Doctor Who. You're getting quite funny stories. Because um, mm. there's, um, there's a character in um, Douglas Adams' Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, I think it's called uh, Zaphod Beeblebrox. Yeah. And it, it feels like if anything's carried over from... Doctor Who into Douglas Adams' universe. It's the, the kind of Tom Baker style there character. Are, there, are, there are characters that appear in both universes. Okay. So, yeah, there's a Professor Quinotis who appears in the unmade Doctor Who story Sharda, who also appears in the Dirk Gently novels. Okay. Okay, but then, as I was saying, after season 16, Douglas Adams takes over as script editor at the beginning of season 17. Season 17 is a mess. I mean, it's, it's the epitome of funny Doctor Who. It, it, you know, you might as well stick a laughter track on it. And uh, Douglas Adams was script editor on it, but he also wrote the second story in that season, which is City of Death, which is maybe the greatest Doctor Who story ever. It's certainly the funniest. It's got a brilliant performance from Julian Glover mm. as, as, the, uh, as the villain in it. Um, it's written by Douglas Adams, but then that's basically the, all the effort he put into that season the rest of it is a mess. He was Why writing. Was he was writing each other to guide the galaxy at the time, so he w he wasn't doing his day job, but he was he was writing each other's guide to the galaxy instead. Was he writing hitchhikers as a, uh, a, a, a as a way to rebel against Doctor Who? Oh or no, was he not, influenced not at all. By but but he was getting a lot of interest for it. Um, and so, uh, and so he was. It, I mean. Uh, I don't know if you know, but Douglas Adams is known as a very lazy writer. Mm. Um, I think that's common knowledge that, you know, he loves... Or is his um, quote about deadlines? He loves the whizzing sound as they, as they pass. Right, right. <laughs> but didn't um, Douglas Adams also suffer from a bit of depression um, as well, yeah, which may have affected his yeah, output? Yeah. 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 So Douglas Adams took over for season 17 and Doctor Who really then had done its comedy era. I, people were getting sick of it. There's a lot of Doctor Who fans who say that Doctor Who ended at the end of season 15, which was Philip Hinchcliffe's last season, or season 17, which was um, the end of Graham Williams, or the end of, or season 18 is the end of Doctor Who, which is the end of Tom Baker. Tom Baker's last season, after Graham Williams leaves, is the first season uh, produced by John Nathan Turner, who will produce Doctor Who from now until the end of its first run in 1980. In 1989, so that he actually he's actually producer for nine nine seasons. 
in all, which is far more than anyone else. Um, I think, yes, you're coming to this, but John Nathan Turner's a pretty controversial figure. He is, he is, yeah. Yeah, I mean, we'll talk about him more in the Peter Davison and Colin Baker years. But um, he first comes in at uh, in season 18. Season 18 is Tom Baker's last season. So was this guy who's about to come in that you was going to mention? Uh, John Nathan Turner. So yeah. did he have anything to do with Doctor Who before? He yeah, yeah, he, he was, uh, he was uh, uh, assistant it... director. Okay. He... So he was, now he's a production manager. Production manager. Yeah, and then he got promoted to be the producer. Mm. Season 18 is his first season. And this is when Doctor Who starts getting a bit... Doctor Who fans are now kind of jumping off a bit because they don't see it as the same show anymore. Part of the reason is that in season 18, the Doctor stops kind of just dressing in whatever he finds. He's suddenly got a costume. He's got question marks on his... On his collar. Oh, I remember you know, that. So now instead, instead of wearing clothes, he's now wearing his superhero costume. Yeah. He's now the superhero, the doctor, rather than just a guy who travels around the universe fixing things. Right. The question mark motif carries on throughout the 80s and people hate it. Um, mm. <laughs> season 18 was um, Christopher H. Bidmead became the um, producer. He wanted to bring Doctor Who back to more kind of science-y kind of... Uh, he hated technobabble, the kind of you know the um, uh, you know the, the made up science that Doctor Who mm. trades on. He wanted the science to be more real. I mean, mm. I don't think he ever really managed that, but he had a go. His first story, The Leisure Hive, is fantastic, and then it and there, there are three stories. Um, there's a trilogy in the middle of, it, of Tom Baker's last season called the East Space Trilogy, which is fantastic. It has um, there's a vampire story. There's a, there's a story about uh, uh, evolution, which is kind of clever. And then there's Warrior's Gate, which is one of the, one of the weirdest Doctor Who stories. It has the, it's, it's a set at a gateway between normal space, which is our universe, and e-space, which is an extra universe. Mm. And um, Warrior's Gate sits at the gateway between these two universes. And it's, a, it's, 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 based, it's kind of like um, Jean Renoir kind of French... Um, you know, pre French cinema from like the thirties and forties has a lot of influence of that. It's kind of it's about these um sort of lion type people who are time sensitive and they keep coming backwards and forwards in time. It's a very experimental story. Um, it does make I don't know if it makes any sense or not because I've never been able to figure it out. But it's it's great. But you have to remember too that season eighteen is also kind of. Peter Davison's first season as the fifth Doctor, even though he's not in it, because during this season, it's the guy who will produce his, his stories, it's the script editor who will edit his stories, and all his companions get introduced in this season before the fifth Doctor actually turns up. So, in a way, Tom Baker's got, he's got his first, uh, you have the first era, the Philip Hinchcliffe, Robert Holmes era, then you have the Graham Williams era, which is the comedy era, and now you're going back to they're getting ready for the 80s now, and um, Peter Davison. So, so what would you say is the lasting impression that Tom Baker on left on the Doctor Who character? Tom Baker is the Doctor. I mean, he's the one that most people think of when they think of the Doctor. It's because, you know, he got the scarf, the, the, the scarf that goes on forever, the curly hair, um, the fact he was in the role for so long. Um, he loved being the Doctor. There's a famous story about him. He was walking down the street at a time when Doctor Who was on and he saw in the window there was a family watching Doctor Who. So he knocked on the door, the parents answered and he told her to be quiet and he walked in. 
sat behind the children's there watching Doctor Who, and when it finished, they turned around and saw him. And <laughs> that was a great. Those were the days. So. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, would you say that out of all of the doctors, like Tom Baker was probably the first and best at breaking the fourth wall of what the story? He was? He, he broke the fourth wall. He was just. Yeah, I mean, he was Doctor for so long that it, in, in the end it was becoming his show. The, the producers were finding it hard to control him. He said at one point that um, I don't need a companion, I just need a talking cabbage that can sit on my shoulder. It's a, a genuine um, <laughs> suggestion from him. They later used that for Castaway, except it was a volleyball and not a cabbage. Oh, yeah, they did it. Yeah, yeah. But he said, all I need is a cabbage on my shoulder to... Um, and I've, I've missed out a lot of companions here. This is the problem with Tom Baker. There's probably not enough for me to kind of talk about him. I want to ask you a couple of questions quickly. Um, yeah. One about the look. You've mentioned the scarf. Do you know how that came about? The scarf came about because they gave a woman uh, a load of wool and said, can you knit a scarf, please, for us? And she thought they meant um, use all the wool. So she used all the wool they gave, they gave her, <laughs> which is why the doctor's scarf is so long. Um you have to mention also Leela. Leela is the companion between Sarah Jane Smith and Romana, the time lady. Leela's kind of a savage. She's she comes from a from a, a kind of war, a planet of um, it's it's a it used to be an Earth colony, but um, she she um she has Janus forms which she can use to stun people. Um, she, she'll beat everyone up. She's the first Doctor Who companion that probably wouldn't scream in any situation. She she's tougher than than most. Doctors even. Leela was fantastic. Tom Becker didn't like her because he wanted the cabbage on his shoulder. But uh, <laughs> Leela was Which fantastic. actor doesn't when they're on live TV? <laughs> Leela, of course, used to wear just um, kind of um, like skins because, you know, she comes from a jungle planet, which the, the fathers, you know, something for the dads. It's Leela. And then, of course, Romana. Romana, the first Romana was played by Mary Tam. She did that for one season. And the second Romana was Lala Ward, Lila Ward ended up marrying Tom Baker after they met on the programme. Um, and later on, she went on to marry uh, Richard Dawkins as well. Not at the same time, obviously. That'd be weird. But, yeah. and So that's quite a couple of ex-husbands to have, isn't it? Yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> I mean, science fiction and science reality. Um, so that's an amazing uh, insight into uh, the fourth Doctor. Yeah, I don't really know. I have to say on these podcasts, I, I don't really... Yeah, there's so much more to say, but yeah. obviously I've got to, there's only so much time to fit it in. But we might have to give um, uh, Tom Baker a 4.5 episode. <laughs> um, but thanks for giving us the insight. Um, I'm sure we're all more knowledgeable for having you around. Uh, Dom, do you feel like you've learned a bit more about the Fourth Doctor? I really do. <laughs> thanks as always, Stephen. Okay, no so- problem. So um, we're going to close out today's segment. I really appreciate the time and ability of uh, Stephen to kind of give us an input. So thanks to our um, co-presenter, Dom. Goodbye. Our co-host, Akosh. Goodbye, guys. Our special guest uh, on Cult TV, Stephen. Cheers. And our ever-present comptroller uh, in the name of Neo Geo. Goodbye, everyone. I've been your host, Trevor. Uh, You were listening to Geek Sweat, and these are our end credits, so we invite you to subscribe as well. Geek Sweat is available on CastBox FM, iTunes, and Stitcher. You can download either app to listen to us. If you want to support the podcast by generating an interview question, 
being a guest or simply becoming a sponsor, please email film at instigateonline.com. We will have more in store. Feel free to rate and review us inside your podcast platform. If you don't have time to do so, tell a friend today and we will be just as grateful. You can also find us online via Twitter, Instagram and Facebook under the hashtag GeekSweat. That's G-E-E-K-S-W-E-A-T. The podcast thrives on listeners, so thank you for sharing your ears. To show you we care, we watch films to save you hassle. hassle.